Hey, Spooksters. Before we start, I had to make a little PSA on this episode. So I am currently the night before Christmas Eve, so Christmas Eve Eve, and the last about 35-ish, if not a little longer, minutes was corrupted. And Jessica is not home with her equipment, so we couldn't re-record that portion to get this up in time for you guys. So we are going to drop what we have here for part four, and technically you'll get a part five. It will probably be after listeners' episodes on Monday, so stick around. It will be coming. We are so sorry that the technical goblins got us, but we hope you guys are having a happy holiday season. And here is the try of Casey Anthony. Enjoy, guys. Warning. This podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. When you want to hear about the paranormal you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal. With the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. We on that haunted ground. The three spooked girls. Hey there, spooksters, and welcome back to part four of this crazy, insane Casey Anthony saga. It is I, one of your co-hosts, Jessica, and as always, I am joined by my beautiful gal pal, Tara. Hey, spooksters. At this point in time, we are in the home stretch. We are going to start talking trial and everything just as soon as we get started. But to keep my promise from last episode that you heard on Monday, here is your second Hanukkah drink, which is going to be called Holiday at the Hive. And it's very beautiful. Go check the socials for the post that went up on Tuesday. And the benefit of this episode is that we get to go right into it because it's stabby format. So yay. Yay. So we left off. Tara talked about they selected the jury on May 9th and on May 20th of 2011. So happy birthday to me nine years ago. No. The jurors were sworn in. Like Tara said, Judge Belvin Perry was presiding and they swore in nine women and eight men. There were only 12 jurors. So seven women actually served with two alternates and five men served with three alternates. So it was, I think, probably the prosecution was looking to have more of like that maternal going on. Whereas I'm pretty sure the defense was like, we need dudes in there. They're going to look at her and be like, she got boobs, but then they didn't show boobs. So it was fine. (laughs) (laughs) This case was done a little differently. Like if you go back and look at the how they did with like the Scott Peterson case, how they kept moving it out of the county instead of being in the Modesto County area. I don't know the exact county that's in. 
They moved it to San Mateo, which is interesting, but that's not the point. That's not the case we're talking about. What they did is they went to Clearwater, Florida and got the jurors and then made them come back to Orange, where they actually had the jury. Because they felt like there was so much coverage happening in Orlando and Orange County that they figured this would be the easiest way to get unbiased. And there's something that one of the attorneys, Jeff Ashton, said. I believe his name is Jeff Ashton. That's what I wrote down, so I hope it is. Is that at this point in time, like what they had to do with the jury, the jury selection is like it had been three years. And so this case was widely covered. I mean, Nancy Grace had given this woman a nickname like her name was Top Mom. Like Nancy Grace was on the television for like 10 months straight screaming about Casey Anthony which isn't a bad thing, like, good for her, because it got such national, maybe even international views. I don't think there's a person out there in the United States, at least, who was alive during the time that didn't know who Casey Anthony was. But it made it really hard to pick an unbiased juror, because either people thought she did it or they thought she was innocent. So basically, they had to look for people who were like, yeah, we've heard everything, we just haven't made up our minds, which is a very difficult thing for a prosecution to do, to have someone already know everything that you're about to present them, and then ignore what they don't present them. So it was a definite uphill battle from like the get-go for both sides of this, because you have the defense who has to come against all of Casey's lies, and people are going to just like tattle. (laughs) (laughs) They're going to get in court and be like, yes, let me tell the truth here. Right. So with that, the trial began on May 24th of 2011 and lead prosecutor Linda Dran Burdick opened the trial. And I'm going to tell you, like this woman got up and she spoke for two hours and 40 minutes total. They kind of split her time at like an hour and 55 minute mark. Oh, my God. I was so mad because I watched this part. right? Like I watched her opening remarks. And she had built all this momentum up, right? And it was like, I was riveted. And then the judge was like, um, we should take a break. And then she had to come back and start over after a 15 minute break, hoping that the jurors would pay attention. One of the things that the judge told them is that if something is presented in the opening statements, but if it's a throwaway statement in an opening remark and there's no evidence later, they can't use it for a determining factor, which is important. Linda gets up and she fucking like, boom, boom, boom. She starts from June 8th of 2008 and walks it through all the way to basically almost trial. And she just like outlines everything. She outlines the lies Casey told. She emphasizes the one thing she does really well here is she emphasizes how much Cindy and George took care of Kaylee, which if you remember in the last episode, like I brought that point up, you know, they were basically raising her. They were financially, emotionally, and physically supporting her. That Cindy and George provided her everything, like her whole room they decorated with the Winnie the Pooh and everything. That was them. Linda does a really good job of walking the jury through every single day, like every single day, every single text message that pertained to Casey and Kaylee. She walked them through every single person that Casey interacted with. Basically, she lined it up beautifully. And I was very impressed. And at this point, like, if you were to be like, okay, jurors, who do you think did it? They'd have been like, Casey. (laughs) Right. But then after two hours and 40 minutes, fucking Jose Baez gets up and starts his opening defense. And he kind of starts off like, you know, we're here. It's about Kaylee, blah, blah, blah. But then he basically outlines the story of like, this is what really happened. Casey is too afraid to say this before now, but we're going to talk about it right here, right now. On June 16th, 
little Kaylee woke up or was not being physically watched by an adult, let's put it that way, because she opened the sliding glass door. She goes outside, she climbs up the ladder and into the pool and basically drowns. And he doesn't actually outline that part there, but this is the, what it alludes to. Mm-hmm. And this is where it's like murky is that Casey and George start looking for Kaylee. Doesn't say who noticed Kaylee was missing. And then George goes out the back door. Casey either goes around to the front or the side door. And she comes around and she finds George standing in the backyard holding the body of Kaylee because Kaylee's gotten to the pool and drowned. She's like, oh my God, like freaking out. George is just holding, like is holding Kaylee and screams at Casey, says, your mom will never forgive you and you will spend the rest of your life in freaking jail. I have a feeling he said fucking, but like, you know, it's court. So paraphrasing. And then Casey was like, started crying and she takes Kaylee and she's like, I don't know what to do. And George, being the dad that he is, decides that he's going to handle it and that he just basically disposes of Kaylee and told Casey like not to tell her mom, we'll figure something out, just go about your life. And he basically goes, yeah, and for the next month she partied. But how could someone go from being this mom who just found her baby dead to this? And it's because Casey was taught to lie. And basically, at this moment in time, says, because when she was eight years old, George snuck into her room and started to touch her inappropriately. And then uh, later on, he's quoted saying, Casey could keep secrets because At 13, she could have George's penis in her mouth and then go to school and act like nothing ever happened. I'm like, oh, wow, this came out of left field. Jose admits in his opening statements that Zanny the nanny isn't real at all. And I'm like, oh, cool. One of the things I want to talk about with George, a lot of people criticize George for the moment in court where they pan to him after this happens and he's just sitting there blank faced. And for a long time, I was like, I don't fucking understand why he just sat there. Like, I would have been like, my face would have reacted. But there's an ID special that both Tara and I watched. And he says on this ID special that his, because they had, Cindy and George had to get lawyers too. And at this point in time, their lawyer had been tipped off by Casey's legal team. Well, basically, they were like, George is going to take the fall for Casey. We're going to set it up and we're going to basically make this George's fault and that George needs to fall on the sword for his kid and that they were going to cement this with sexual assault allegations. So George's like stoicness or like lack of reaction is because he was actually prepared for what was coming. Mm -hmm. He already knew. Right. And I think that when people take it out of context, they're like, oh, yeah, he could possibly be in on this because look at his face. But it's because someone had like told him like, hey, by the way, this is what's coming down the pipe. And his attorney and the judge had even ordered them. They were witnesses. Both Cindy and George were witnesses. And normally witnesses don't get to stay in the courtroom. That's just not how it works. But because they were the grandparents of Kaylee, the judge thought it was respectful to let them hear what was happening. So they were told like, you cannot react. You have to sit there. So he was doing exactly what he was ordered to do was just sit there and not react. Because that could also sway the jurors. And that's not what he, he's not allowed to do that. Right. However, the way they fucking set up the courtroom, Casey was like directly in front of the jurors the whole time. So the jurors got to see her all this emotion. Like literally she was facing the fucking jury. It wasn't like she was like at the side and they could kind of see her. It was like they were like, hello, this is eye contact. 
Yeah. Obviously, we're going to address the sexual assault allegations with George in just a minute, but I want to finish the defense's opening statement. Like I said, Jose says that Zanny never existed. It was just something she made up because of this lie that she had to protect because of this sexual assault. And he goes on and begins his first attack on a key witness, which is Roy Cronk, who, if you remember in the last episode, found Kaylee's remains. And basically, he questioned... Roy's morals because there was a $250,000 reward to find Kaylee. And he says that Roy found the remains. No one would come out and get them. And then he basically kept the remains until he needed money. And then he put her back and that he basically only did it for money, which is like, bitch, you're a lawyer being well paid, quote unquote, for your services. Like, <laughs> we'll get there in a minute. So once opening statements are over, the prosecution calls George Anthony as their first witness. Like, they need to get him on that stand. He has to be, like, the first person to be like, this didn't happen. And the first question they ask him is, did he ever sexually abuse his daughter? He's just like, no. I think he had time to process that part. And then when they asked if he was participated in the cover-up, he literally, like, kind of loses a little bit on the stand. He just kind of gets a little, not too bad, but a little choked up. And he basically says he was so hurt when he heard all of this today. And the prosecution brings up the point that George wanted to kill himself. And he explained what happened. In my opinion, I honestly think that the suicide note, people think it's of guilt. And I don't think so. I think it's about a man who's at the end of everything. He's lost everything. He's lost his granddaughter. He's lost his daughter. I think Cindy was spiraling out of control because of, like Tara mentioned, she was trying to recant some of her statements to help Casey. I think he just didn't know what to do. And I think George just needed a way out. You know, I watched an interview with the two of them and Cindy's thankful. Like the thing that she says that saved his life is that he ate something. Right. Yeah. Because she says he had like a sandwich or something. And if he hadn't, he wouldn't be here. Right. Because I think that sandwich absorbed the alcohol. Right. Mm -hmm. I honestly don't think it's over him feeling guilty about anything. No. Honestly, I think with George being an ex-police officer, he, if something had happened like that, one, he would have had the foreknowledge to look at the fact that if an accidental drowning had happened, Casey wouldn't have gone to prison for the rest of her life. She may deal with some neglect issues, but most likely, I mean, she hadn't been in trouble with law before. They probably would have slapped her on the wrist and been like, Whatever. So at this point in time, the prosecution then enters the first piece of evidence, which is the jailhouse videos with Casey and George. And this is to basically like Casey's just come out and her defense team has just said that, you know, for years, for years, there's been this inappropriate sexual relationship with George. I don't think they ever indicate when it stops. So they show these videos to like counter offer this. So one of the things that they show is that Casey is very like affectionate towards George. She like cannot stand her mom half the time. She says things like, I want to talk to dad. Like the only person I wanted to talk to was you. I love you. And when George kind of breaks down and says like on the tape or on the video, like I wish I had been a better dad to you and a better grandfather for Kaylee, you know, that's where Casey says like, you were the best dad. You were the best grandfather. Like. And that's where she slips up and says the past tense of like, I'm so glad Kaylee had you, you know, those type of things. So 
they're kind of like, if there was a sexual assault, you would think that this would be the time that she could like get away from him. She wasn't being controlled by him anymore. It was like the opposite. And people actually like kind of were saying how George seems so meek and mild that he kind of seemed like the opposite of like that he wouldn't even have screamed at her. Right. I totally agree. And then after this, there is a cross-examination that happens, and George is questioned about his suicide by Jose. And of course, Jose is just like, oh, you did this because you're guilty, and I'm a dick face. I'm not even going to pretend like I don't like Jose. Like, Jose Baez can suck a nut. (laughs) Honest to God, like, oh, he's such trash. Yeah. And at this point in time, like, George breaks down on it. And, like, he gets to the point where, like, the judge has to be like, do you need to take a break? And he's like, I know. There's something inside of me. I just have to get through this. And like he had to be able to tell people like the reason I wanted to kill myself is I could not go on without my granddaughter. I'd lost everything. And I think at that point he really had because it's not just that he lost Kaylee. It's that he lost the illusion of this family, that his family was functional, that like he's coming to grips with if Casey's here, could Casey have really killed my granddaughter? That's what he's having to come to terms with. But Jose... (laughs) We don't like him. Mm-hmm. Right. So Jose definitely says that he's upset because he's guilty trying to cover up Kaylee's death. And then over the next few days, the prosecution is going to bring in a long ass line of Casey's friends. And I mean a long ass line. They were like anyone who partied, talked to, was around, could give any kind of testimony. The prosecution put them on the stand. And some of it was like they would get up, they would say their name, how they knew Casey, had they ever met Kaylee, all this kind of stuff. And then they would be like, during this time, did she mention her? What did she say to you? Where did she say Kaylee was? Then they'd be like, okay, thank you. And then like, Jose didn't really like cross-examine them because he's going to call them back later. So, like, he chose to not cross-examine them so he could bring it back later, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. And this must have all been strange for Casey. Like, could you imagine, like, sitting in a room and all of these people are like, this is what happened? Yeah, basically everybody in your social circle and in, like, your acquaintances' social circle is just parading through while you're on trial for murder. Of your two-year-old daughter. Of your daughter, yeah. Ugh. Right. And then they, like, and at one point in time, they bring up people who Casey had said she worked with and, like, didn't work with. (laughs) So remember the boyfriend, Jeff, that, like, we've been talking about? The fake boyfriend? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the fake boyfriend. They bring him up. He exists. (laughs) Because here's the thing. There was a Jeff who had a similar name who went to junior high with Casey. Oh, it's that guy. Okay. Yeah. And this was the guy that she was like saying like had the son Zach and that she was staying with in Jacksonville and all this stuff. And he's like, um, no. (laughs) You know, the weirdest thing is, is that like they had run into each other like really close to all this happening around July 2nd. He was at a restaurant with some friends and she was at some restaurant with a friend, some friends, and they see each other. And like, mind you, she has been lying for like at this point, like a year about this dude. So they bring Jeff up and they ask him, like, is this your name? And he was like, well, no, because she said his middle name was Michael. And that's not his middle name. He's like, do you have a son named Zachary? And he's like, I don't have a kid. And he's like, do you live here? And he's like, I don't live there. Like all of these other things. Like, did you go to North Carolina? Like all these facts were like wrong. And he's like, no, none of this is true whatsoever. 
Jose did cross-examine him and was basically pointing out that his middle name was different and there had to be a different Jeff out there. Like this couldn't be the, I think his his last name is Hopkins. It's like, you can't be the only Jeff Hopkins in the world. And he asked him if he had a crush on Casey as a kid, like in junior high, and basically implying that the reason that he's saying all this stuff now is to get back at Casey for some like axe grinding mad because Casey didn't return his liking her. So now as an adult, he's like getting his revenge by like, saying he wasn't her boyfriend. (laughs) What the fuck? Oh my god. This is not a telenovela. Jose, get the fuck off it. God. Well, he thinks it is. They would also, about this time, interview Jesse Grund, and he would talk about, like, how he saw Casey during this time without Kaylee, the stories he told, the text messages, like, the whole thing around July 3rd and July 4th about, like, what was going on. And basically, they were like, here's his testimony. And of course, Jose was like, "Mm -mm, no, don't trust him. He's bad juju. They would ask all her party friends, when you were with her, did she talk about her kid? And sometimes she did and sometimes she didn't. On May 27th of 2011, uh, the prosecution called Simon Birch, who if you remember from like my first one, I talked about Simon Birch. He was the operations manager at the tow yard and he is quoted and saying... I put my hand on the glass to shield the sun and I looked through the windows. And at that point, I did notice a fairly strong odor emitting from the vehicle. And he goes on and says that an instant flash in my mind was, whoa, I know what that is. And he talked about the fact that in his time, he had come across a guy who had committed suicide and um, had been in the car for five days. So like he had smelled that and he knew. And he goes on to say, like, when he and George opens the car, he says, the smell came out very instantly. The dude likes the word instantly. Very potent. It was eye-opening. And in the back of my mind, I said to myself, that smells like decomposition. Obviously, I think he was maybe coached a little bit on his vocabulary. But overall, I think this is an A+. Like, this is a good what he's remembered. They would also question George about the scent. And remember, George was like a homicide detective. He knew. For a bit. So like he knew the smell of decomposition. And I'm going to say this. If you liked the old fashioned drinking game, drink every time I say composition, you will be very drunk by the end of this episode. This is 2020. Come on, do it, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Jose would cross-examine George here again. And basically, this is where George is like, I did not molest my daughter. I don't know why this was the time he decided, but this is the time he decided. But good for George. Cindy Anthony would also testify throughout the trial. And like I said, she wanted to recant her statement about how the car smelled like there was a dead body in it. So the thing with Cindy is Cindy fucking did not want her daughter to go to prison. This was obvious. She was looking out for her her baby, Casey. I think Cindy would have done anything or said anything to bring Casey home. I don't understand this because I don't get, like, I get, like, you love your kids and you want them. But, like, if I had a kid and my kid killed their kid or somebody told me that my kid killed their kid and we were sitting in a trial, I'd be reevaluating my life and being like, really? Did she? You know what this reminds me of? This goes back to John Bonet and that whole theory that, yes, Burke was responsible, but Patsy wanted to protect Burke so she didn't lose both her children because Kaylee was essentially another child to Cindy. So she's like, I've lost Kaylee, so I need to do what I can 
because apparently fucking forget about Lee, whatever. <laughs> Poor Lee. I know. But like those parallels, I could see that. I don't understand it either, but that's what it reminds me of for sure. And it's just like Cindy, I can comprehend it, but I just can't understand it if that makes any sense to anyone. I can like intellectually grasp the concept, but like I cannot feel it. But back to what she was saying, the reason that they were testifying at this point in time is because this is during the time when the prosecution is really focusing on the scent of decomposition in the car. They also bring Amy up at this point, if you remember Amy Helzinga, and she testifies about the text message that she received on June 27th of 2008 about the dead animal in the frame that Casey's car smelled. So this was a bigger deal. On June 2nd, the prosecution, at least in my opinion, made great strides. And what they did is they showed the videotapes about Casey lying. This is audio tapes of when she's lying to the detectives. They're really trying to line up that Casey lied. And like, how can you take anything her defense? Like, this is, okay, I should say, they implied because Casey lied, you can't trust anything that comes out of the camp. They should have just fucking said that. Because anything at this point in time, like, if she's willing to lie about where her daughter is and waste time and do all of this shit, then she's literally, like, how could you take anything she says seriously? 100%. 100%. Like, (laughs) it's just the fucking facts at this point. Also, this is noted that a detective that was there that night apparently the detective and Casey he's like come on let's get away from everyone let's talk and let's take a walk and they like walked in a cul-de-sac right and he asks did she drown in the pool by accident is this like an accident and Casey says no nobody even challenges this or acknowledges it later wow the one thing I will say is like the prosecution did a really good job but Jose out fucking Johnny Cochran to them that makes any sense like he put on a better show prosecution went in and they were very like here's our facts here is this they didn't make big grand jest i mean they did i'll talk about that in a minute but like they didn't make enough of them and jose baez is like he's very very flamboyant in how he like drives something home it's over the top like to say that the dude is extra is like underselling it So around this time, it's June 3rd through the 4th of 2011, and they're really talking about decomposition in the car, and they're starting to present this evidence over and over and over again. The investigator, they bring the investigators, and when they smelt it, they were like, oh, it smells like human remains. They have the FBI talking about, like, the gnats and the freaking hair, and they find this hair Tara talked about in the last episode, and it has something called, like, a death banding in it or corpse banding. And basically, it's named because it's found most prevalently on hairs that have fallen off a corpse. However, that's not the only time it can happen. It can happen with, like, other kinds of damage. So, like Tara said, as they tested the mitochondrial DNA, which comes from the mother's gene, so it would basically have to either be Cindy, Kaylee, or Casey. It was about nine inches in length. And the thing that they noted about this hair is that it was untreated, so it had no hair color in it. Cindy frequently colored her hair. Casey frequently colored her hair. The only one of them that had never colored their hair was Kaylee. This DNA lined up with the Anthony women. It was her hair color. Like I said, it had that band in it. 
So they have this guy that's up on the stage and Jose Bias cross-examines and basically keeps questioning the expert until the expert is has this question is, can you 100% confirm that the hair that you found that you tested came from a corpse and that there's no other possibility? And she couldn't. She couldn't definitively 100%. She could give her expert in saying that it most likely came from, but, you know, a jury, like this is a death penalty case. Like that's the thing that people have to think about. This isn't like life imprisonment with possibility of parole like this is like she's gonna go like if she gets if she's found guilty she's going to death row like they're taking her out and she's going to death row there's no like in between really and so for that jurors need like an expert to say yes i can say with 100 percent certainty that that hair came from a dead body and that dead body was kaylee anthony and she couldn't do it so this is one area where the prosecutions or the state's case falls apart So basically how, like, if you go to the trunk and how it smelled and how they were going to get to test that there was actual decomp, which Tara talked about, that they did the testing for. So what's causing the decomp is basically the gases build up in the body and then they're released out into the air. And then, like, let's say that you're in a trunk and you're decomposing in the trunk and those gases have released and now they're in the air. The air then settles down, like the particles in the air then settle down onto the floor. We understand this. We've been living through COVID. We understand how things in the air land on things that are not in the air. Like we've we've got this at this point. So with that, they bring in this doctor by the name of Dr. Arpid Voss. I want to point this out. He is a doctor, like PhD doctor, and it's an anthropology. So I want to get that out of the way. He's also a forensic scientist. So basically what he did is he took a piece of a carpet and put it in a paint can and then waited a little bit. I don't know if like what happens. I don't know what the fuck happens in a paint can, but apparently it pulls shit out of a carpet. I don't like that's the part of my brain like, well, it was in the carpet. Why don't you just do the little sucky vacuum thing? But they didn't have that then. But if they did it now, Mm -hmm. but they could get like DNA from it. Probs. Yeah. People, somebody call somebody. So basically he put the carpet sample in a paint can and waited and then extracted the air from inside the paint can and then put it through a processor, which then pulled out every single bit of particle, gas, whatever, and broke it out so that they could see. And they found high levels of decomp in this. So they're like, yeah, something was decomposing in this car for a bit because it's in the carpet. And mind you, they found in the trunk, they found a child-sized stain, which most likely was the gases. At this point in time, Dr. Voss basically said that he can think of no plausible reason that that level of decomp would be in that trunk, in that sample, other than there was a dead body. And like, you can see the prosecution is just like, swish, win, yes. And then he goes on to testify about the levels of chloroform found in the sample. And he says it's extremely high. That yes, that in decomposing bodies, that it does make a slight amount of chloroform, but it is not the amount that he found. And that this could only happen if they had been killed with chloroform. Now, according to Dr. Louis Koblinski, who is a professor of forensic science, he states that chloroform is very easy to recreate at home. This is what's interesting. He said this on that ID special that Tara and I have mentioned, and he is actually the defense's expert witness or helper. Basically, he helped debunk a lot of the shit or point Jose in the right direction of asking the questions. And he, this dude, Jose Baez did not win this 
Dr. Lawrence Koblinski won this for him. It just, Jose was up there like, look at me talk. Because this dude was like, say this. Pretty much. So at this point in time, because that's going to come later in the defense part. But the prosecution then brings the handlers of the two dogs in to talk about like how they hit on the human scent of decomp. And it's good to note that there were two different dogs and two different handlers. So it's not like it's one handler who's biased because he knows the area the dog needs to hit on. It's two completely separate people. And I think it's really interesting that they hit the same spots. However, I honestly think that the defense did a poor job here of not pointing out that probably the reason that the dog hit on decomp outside of Kaylee's, if they're going with their story that she drowned, is that most likely what ended up happening is that they brought Kaylee out of the pool and laid her next to the... But they didn't say that. That would have been easy. That would have taken what the prosecution presented and made it plausible for them. But no, this is also the time where the prosecution brings up the activity that is happening on the Anthony's computer, which is that on March 21st of 2008, Casey was the only one at home. And this happened on the 17th and the 21st. There were two times looking up how to make chloroform. Like there are so many searches that she did on so many different websites all about like how to make chloroform, like all these things. And later on in the defense part, we're going to hear that like Cindy tries to like say that she did it because she was looking for chlorophyll and it just brought up chloroform. That's not how Google searches work. And it wasn't like she just did one. It was like this Whoever did this, like, spent hours researching this, I swear to God. So on June 9th of 2011, the prosecution then enters into evidence all of the photos that were taken at the time the remains were recovered. And apparently, this makes Casey ill. They have to stop for the day and dismiss the jury because Casey gets too ill to continue. Which is interesting because they always talk about how, like, she doesn't act, like, remorseful or anything like that. Which I want to say she does because in the opening statements of the prosecution, there's a moment where she's talking about how Cindy took Kaylee to go see Cindy's dad. And that she had unknowingly taken the last pictures and videos of Kaylee. And this is the part where Casey actually cries. Casey cries at that. Which it's not talking about like what Casey's facing. But even if Casey killed Kaylee, she could still be sad in the realization that those are the last pictures. Yep. And even if we hate the topic or person we're talking about guts, like when we find stuff like that, we tell y'all. Right. And that was something that like really kind of irritates me when I like hear a lot about Casey Anthony as they talk about her being emotionless. Mm -hmm. Yes, 95% of the time she's crying over what's happening to her. Right. But there are these some moments where she does get upset about Kaylee. And here's the thing about compartmentalization. I am a huge compartmentalizer. Tara knows this. In a span of two years, I lost all of the parents I had. My grandparents who raised me and then my biological mom were talking like really, really fast. And at 31, I suddenly became responsible for like making sure my mom got buried, taking care of everything. And to handle this, I had to decompartmentalize my life. Tara knows this was a rough part of my life. She can tell you like I pulled back from people. I wasn't like my bubbly self, but I had a job that required me to be bubbly and personable and everything like that. After all of my parents passed, I went to work either that day, like my dad died at like 5.08 in the morning and I was at work at nine. It's just, I've always said this, it's like when I was young, I had a friend who had these like plastic white boxes that like you could stick the bottom 
fit in, like the lid would go over it. And when I picture like my compartmentalization, I literally picture me like putting my problem in one of those boxes, the size it needs, and then putting it on a shelf. Like I visualize this and I know it's there and it's labeled what it is. But there are moments in my life, Tara has seen them, where all of a sudden it's just like somebody came in and slapped the shit out of my shelves and like things fall out. And I understand what it's like to go from being like grieving in private to being in public having to smile. So I get that about Casey. However, there were so many things that like, I know that even though I, Tara can attest to this, I'm an amazing compartmentalizer. There were things they were talking about that I would not have been able to withstand. Because when somebody talks to me about the death of my parents or the shit that happened with my aunt or anything like that, and it really like gets to me, I either get really loud and angry or I get really like, like I break down and cry. And yes, I cry. I've cried on the podcast. I cry a lot. Like I fucking, like this is why, like I say to Tara, like, I don't know the fuck I'm crying at this movie. It's not even that sad. Like, I don't know why I'm crying because Rory and Logan aren't going to be together. Like this is real life. This is real texting to Tara. (laughs) But it's because like I have these emotions that I haven't dealt with. They need to come out somehow. (laughs) Yes. And they find these avenues. And so that's why it's like really hard for me to like understanding compartmentalization. And yes, everyone is different. But like I am an extreme case. Like I've had a therapist tell me that I am looking at a complete and total meltdown someday. There's going to come a moment where I'm going to fucking melt the fuck down. And everyone around me is going to be like, oh, Jesus, this is the this is the one. So (laughs) you get to be my best friend. (laughs) (laughs) fine (laughs) right because of that like i don't get how she can sit there like they're talking about things and her not get emotional even serial killers have seen like the decomposition of bodies and they just freak out because they're like oh that's disgusting like i did not see it at that stage so just know that anyway my point is, is she got really upset and sick and the jury was dismissed And now, over the next few days, the prosecution is going to lay out the rest of their case. Now, we talked about Dr. G in the last episode, and Dr. G is the medical examiner. She basically shares how she came up with, you know, was homicide. And one of the ways was the fact that she found duct tape over the kid's mouth, but also the fact that she had been a medical examiner for like 20 something years at this point. And at this point in time, she had never come across a case of an accidental drowning where the parent didn't call 911. Like it didn't happen. Right. She said because, you know, and there was like a, I think I watched the same special you did where it was just her and she's talking about the case. And she's talking about at this point in time, how parents, even if they think their kid has been in the water for like 30 minutes, an hour, like they don't know how long the the kid has been in the water. They literally will call 911 because they want someone to try to do something. I mean, and there's been cases of kids who've been found in pools for 30 minutes and then they've freaking revived them. Bodies can be resilient. You never know. And you, they don't know, like, because like to her point, Kaylee could have been in that pool two minutes. She could have literally like gone outside, like according to their stories, she could have gone outside while they're looking for her and climbed up into the pool and fallen in and only been there a couple of minutes. Also, why wouldn't George call? Like he's an ex-cop. They're trained to that you call 911. Or he has, if he's an ex-cop, he has some sort of first aid training. You're telling me that he didn't even try to revive his granddaughter? So she says this is the other reason she called it a homicide is because she'd never seen this. 
a lot of people are like, mm, can she? But I would say she could. Oh, yeah. And like Tara mentioned in the last episode, Dr. G talks about the body of Kaylee, like her hair, all her hair had like roots growing through it. The canvas bag had roots growing through it. I mean, it had been there a while. And also you have to look at the fact that Florida right after Kaylee disappears, becomes hurricane season. And the area in which Kaylee was found was underwater for some time. I mean, Tara talked about, you know, the police officer that slipped and was like, I ain't fucking going out there. Why? Because it was literally hurricane water. The EquiSearch people, they were told, like, you're not allowed to go into water like that. It's the same way when you go to, like, places that have had tornadoes, hurricanes, all those places. You're not allowed, you're not supposed to spend time in the water because of the shit that gets displaced in it. It could have not only just, like, things that physically harm you, but, like, knives or glass or fucking shards of metal, whatever. It could also have bacteria in it that could eat your flesh. There's a lot of shit. Don't go in storm water. So she says this. So this area wasn't searched that well. It was probably given, like, a little look-see over, and they didn't see anything, and then they left. Which is why when Roy Cronk went back... Months late, four months later, he could find the body because the water had gone away, which is such a weird concept because in California, like there's no water in July. <laughs> there's no what? No water in July and August, but there's super water in December. So like it's backwards. So she gives her expert testimony and I was like, wow, I was impressed with her. But then Jose gets up and basically it's one of these things where he asks her to give a definitive cause of death, like how, when, where, what causes child to die. And because of the level of decomp this body was in, they'll never know what the true cause of death was. Casey could be 100% right. She could have drowned in that pool. But I don't think George helped her. I ain't buying that shit. What they're saying is, is that like, they can't say how Kaylee died. They just can't. Dr. G also talked about the duct tape and they actually brought in a duct tape expert. They never really say what brand it is, but this was like a special kind of duct tape. And the duct tape that was found on Kaylee's mouth was also found on the gas cans that Casey threw at her parents or at her dad. And then it was also a piece of it was found on a, like a, have you seen this kid flyer? So they were using the duct tape and it was all compared. And this expert said that it was all made at the same time and most likely was like on the same roll. And Dr. G says that she's done hundreds of autopsies in her lifetime. And what ends up happening at this level of decomp is that the jaw or the mandible, like Tara said, it's no longer attached to the skull because there's nothing holding it there but like tendons and muscle. It's not like hard attached, if that makes sense. I don't know if that does. But she had never seen a mandible being still attached to the skull, but it was because of the duct tape. The duct tape was holding it. So the prosecution then shows this video, which is kind of their big, like, ballsy move. And this ballsy move is they show this video of Kaylee, like, smiling. And I'm pretty sure Casey's in the picture with her. And it's this picture of Kaylee smiling. And then they put duct tape over her mouth to show exactly where it would go. And then they do a fade to the decomp of which Kaylee was when they found her. Cindy said this was like a really hard thing for her to watch. And George said too, like, he's like, I didn't want to see that. And I think even Casey got upset again. But like I said, their expert came in and their expert said, yeah, if duct tape was placed where it was placed, where they found it, it would have resulted if the child was alive and the child dying. Because obviously the duct tape didn't come off. It was just there. 
And then the prosecution says their series of events. This is what they say happened, is that Casey used chloroform to knock out Kaylee because it was more humane, and then placed the duct tape over her mouth and let Kaylee die in her sleep, like being passed out. And then once she waited for her to die, she put her in the trunk of her car and then drove to her boyfriend's house. Then she spent a couple of days and then she like eventually came back to the Anthony residence because as I talked about in my first part, so in part two of this series, she went back to the Anthony's house consistently over like a week And they think that during this week, she was, like, getting the trash bags. Like, because she had trash bags in her car. The trash bags in her car were just like the ones they found with Kaylee. So they had that. And obviously, Tara mentioned in the last episode that they found the canvas laundry bag. And it matched exactly, like, it was the set. And the other one was in the Anthony home. So they think that she went back in and got it. This is what they've told. And so they have set up the fact that during the 31 days that Kaylee was missing, that she was not looking for her, that she was partying, that she was lying to everyone. They brought in expert witnesses to talk about the decomp in the car. They've talked about the chloroform and how easy it is that she could have made it. They talked about the levels of the chloroform inside the car, which means that it had to be present at her time of death. They've talked about the duct tape and like it had to be placed there meaningfully because it was like stuck to her and it kept her jaw or her mandible in place. Obviously, it had to be in the trunk. She had to be in the trunk at some point because there were the little gnats and then the signs of decomp on there. And then they bring up Tony. He's not part of that first crowd. He's later on. And they basically asked Tony, like, so what was Casey like? And he was like, she was normal. Did she seem upset? No. Did she seem concerned about Kaylee? No. I mean, someone said that Tony said that he woke up one night and Casey was like crying to a video of her. But there's like hardly any proof because he didn't bring this up in his testimony, which you would think he would have, like if that was something. So it's like a kind of a hearsay thing. And so they basically just grill him about like what happened. He talks about the hot body contest. He talks about how she participated in it. All of that stuff, but not about how she was upset about Kaylee. It's also been brought out that Tony had told Casey that he didn't want kids. And if he did have a kid, he'd want it to be a boy because he didn't want to have a girl. And she had a girl and she was with Tony. Then the prosecution calls their last witness, which is a man by the name of Bobby Williams. And he's actually the tattoo artist that put the Bella Vita on her back. And he was actually questioned about like her demeanor and saying like, oh yeah, she talked about Kaylee and she actually had made another appointment and she promised she was going to bring her. Because like right before, like literally the day, July 15th, she called Bobby's shop and made an appointment to get another tattoo, then went and stole Amy's money to pay for said tattoo. And then, you know, was going to make an appointment to go get another tattoo at like two the next day or something like that. But she promised to bring in Kaylee. And so basically they asked about her demeanor and he that's when he kind of tells everyone like, look, she was just more concerned like about talking about her boyfriend, Tony, because he was looking for a new place. But really, Tony was planning to move back to Staten Island. So it wasn't even like there's a whole mess. So at this point in time, the prosecution rests. Mind you, they can cross-examine during the defense, but they rest. So on June 16th, 2011, three years to the date for the last time another person besides Casey Anthony saw Kaylee Anthony, the defense begins. 
Jose Baez begins by recalling all of the state witnesses. So basically, all of them. And he does a really good job of attacking all of the forensic evidence. Like at this point in time, with this particular case, the state or the prosecution has to convince the jury that Casey did this. And this is how Casey did this. And all the defense really has to do is put reasonable doubt into your mind. And that's what he did. And that's why his like dog and pony show really fucking works. Because he basically brings in his own witnesses and they talk shit about the science that's there. I think about this like in the fact that I uh, just recently started rewatching Bones again. And it's like an episode of Bones where like her old mentor is like basically making fun of her on the stand because she can't connect and he can't even understand her. And she's a and he's a scientist too. And she's, you know, it's kind of like that kind of shit. So basically, one of the things the defense does is they say, look, everyone says that smells like decomp in that car. But like they opened that bag and there were maggots in the plastic bag because of the pizza, because it had sat in a fucking hot ass car for three weeks, two weeks. So it's like humidity plus heat. That shit was going to be rank. So it's not the decomp you smell, it's the pizza you smell. And we can't even test all of it because, well, the investigators dried it all out. So we don't, we don't even know. We can't test it. That was one thing. Then they bring Cindy back up onto the stand and she flip-flops her story again. It's the same flip-flop, I should say, that basically she admits that the reason she said what she said was so that the police would take her seriously and come out. To be honest, at this point in time, they had not followed through and they had not come out and had been quite some time. It had been like two hours since she had initially called. But the way that this works is like it's a sheriff's department, right? And you have to look at it as the fact that they're going to go by what's like most precedent. Like if there's an accident on the side of the road and people are bleeding to death, they're going to go to that versus coming to your house because they're not saying it's a domestic. They're just saying that there's this car being stolen. So basically at this point, she's she said what she said because she was being extra and trying to um, create urgency. Yeah. Yes, she was. Yeah. So that's what she was trying to do. And I get that. But like it was weird. And then the defense goes on to attack Dr. Voss's work. And basically, he lets the jury know that this is the first time that this has ever been used, that this is new science, and that there's no one, there's no one else doing this, essentially. And this is when he goes, so what is your PhD in? And he goes, anthropology. And he goes, oh, but you're studying chemicals. He's the fucking bones, people. Like, he's bones. Leave him alone. He's very well respected in his field. All y'all just being jackasses. And then Jose brings in experts to talk about chloroform and how it's a very common thing. Chloroform isn't everything. It's in household cleaners. It can be just in a ton of different things. And that that's why it was there. It wasn't because she had been chloroformed. It was because there probably had been a cleaning solution in the car. I'm like, but there was not. Like, this is the thing the prosecution didn't do is they didn't go, yeah, that could have been, but where was the cleaning solutions? They also bring up Cindy to talk about the searches that happened in March. And when the searches happened, they actually were like, Cindy, you were at work. And she's like, I wasn't at work. I did not work. And the prosecution was like, uh, no, they actually brought up two representatives earlier to like basically say Cindy was at work. Here are her time cards. 
here are her logins. It was like one guy was like their IT guy, essentially, I think, and saying, no, like these are her computer logins. The only ones who could use this is her. And it's not like Cindy worked at like a Kinko's where everyone used the same thing. She's like a head nurse at a medical. She's an admin nurse at a facility. So like she had a lot of responsibility. Yeah. So it's not like she would just be like, here's my username and password. No. (laughs) So she was at work while the searches were happening. So the prosecution is like, the only person who could have done this is Casey Anthony. And Casey's just like, "Mm -mm." she's very good at shaking her head. No, I'll give her that. Ugh. She does that a lot. Like, every time they say something she doesn't agree with, she's like, mm Which, again, she's facing the fucking jury. So, like, someone says something and then Casey shakes her head and they're like, well, who's telling the truth? It can't be the known liar. Right? Like, what the fuck? Why are you thinking that? <laughs> then Jose Baez does the thing where he goes after Roy Cronk because he talks about the fact that he already thought that Roy had moved the body and then put it there because the day before that Kaylee's body was found, his car broke down and he needed money. And then all of a sudden he finds this body and gets $250,000 to fix his car. I mean, it like it honestly, it could be it could be that like it could be that his car broke. But here's the thing. It's not like he hadn't tried. He had tried in August and nobody listened. So he probably had, you know, that's his route. Like he knows it. He was probably on it and looked over and was like, oh, there's a better view. I should probably like, you know, go look at that. The one thing that he did is at first he told detectives and investigators that he had not touched the body. And then they were like, something seems amiss. And then he mentions that he took a stick and kind of like moved stuff around. And at one point in time, he actually like picked up the skull with a stick and then put it down. So Jose is like, you can't trust anything you find because anything that you find from the crime scene has been compromised because we don't know it. Roy Kronk did, which by the way, every time I say Kronk, I'm like, eh, wrong lever. <laughs> oh no, same. And he kind of looks a little like a Kronk. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so they attack him. And then they go in and they start attacking Dr. G's findings. And one of the first things, so we're going to start talking about this guy named Vernon Spitz. Dr. Vernon Spitz, who apparently worked on the JFK case, so he old, also worked on the OJ case. So, you know, he's pretty infamous in his circle. Right. And he says that the duct tape could not have been placed on the child's mouth because there was no DNA on it. Now... I don't know much about science, but if a body decomposes and there's no body left but bone, why would there be DNA left on the tape? You would think that, like, if that's the case, you would think there'd still be tissue. We know that it was on there. Basically, what they were saying is that it was not firmly on there when the child died, that later on during the decomp process, that the body had been disturbed by those animals, and that at that point the duct tape was like somehow found its way onto the mouth of the child when there was no flesh there. Mm, just perfectly. Got it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. To hold the jaw to like the nose and the jaw and to keep it perfect. Wow. I know. Dr. Spitz is a, mm-hmm. <laughs> Fuck Dr. Spitz. Um, <laughs> and then he says that if, it, if this had been the case, you would have found DNA on the outside. They didn't find DNA on the outside of the bag either. So you're telling me she couldn't have put gloves on and done that? Like she couldn't have gotten like kitchen gloves in her hand? Exactly. And then put the duct tape on? Or the fact that like it was established to come from their home? So she would have had reason to touch it anyway? 
Um, There was a fucking sticker on it. And so he basically says that the duct tape could not be scientifically proven that it was the murder weapon. He also calls Dr. G's work spotty and says that they should really question why the medical examiner, i.e. Dr. G, didn't open the skull. She didn't get a chance to because I didn't call her up. But in the special that Tara and I watched, she says, the reason I didn't is because it was a tiny skull and it would have broken it. It would have fallen apart, which by the fucking way, when Spitz opened up Kaylee's skull, he broke it. So like his own logic of like, why wouldn't you look inside? Because she says, you know, I could look inside that the skull was intact. I could see inside of it. I could see, you know, and he... He opened it up and there was no, there was nothing on the inside, but then he mm-hmm. couldn't definitively say because he fucking broke the skull. Right. Which I would have been outraged if I had found out that my granddaughter's skull had been, but then again, they did cremate her, but like, you know what I'm saying? Right. Exactly. So then the defense calls all of her friends and they don't ask, how was she during those 31 days? And they ask, how long have you been friends with her? They say, did you ever see her with Kaylee? Yes. Was she a good mother? Yes. Did she ever neglect her? No. End of conversation. Move on. It's very easy. Like that's like that's the problem with court. Like you get asked a question and you don't get to elaborate outside of your question. So like they didn't ask, did she party with you? Did she lie to you? No. I'm not denying that Casey was there for her kid when her kid was with her. Right. I'm not saying she was a bad mom. I know plenty of people that I would put on like a questionable mom list that when their kids are with them, they're great. But like other actions, you're like, mm, I am concerned about you. Mm-hmm, for sure. And then they poked at the whole, the prosecution was saying that the whole reason that Casey killed her kid was that she wanted a child-free life. She wanted to go and party and be single and not have the responsibility of a child on her plate. And the defense poked at this saying like she basically had that lifestyle anyways because her parents took care of Kaylee. However, Cindy and Casey both deny this, but the neighbor says this happened, is that the night before, so like the 15th, when Casey got home at like nine something or seven something, they get into this fight about Casey not being around. And basically Cindy says like, you're a bad mom and I'm going to take Kaylee from you. And then the kid dies. I don't know how much more motive you really need. Right. So this isn't brought up, but this is just why I wanted to interject that. And so they basically said, this is not what happened. She drowned. This whole thing is innocent. She drowned. And then the only thing that the defense had to prove is that their story was plausible. And they did, because basically what they did is they showed a picture that showed Kaylee had opened the sliding glass door, that she had the capability of opening the door. And it's it's a very cute picture. It's like she's standing in the doorway and someone took it from like watching her walk out the door. And they said that she knew how to open the gate. Like if they'd go out to go swimming, Kaylee could open the gate to go out to the pool. According to Cindy, she was pretty sure that she had taken the ladder out on the 15th. But she remembers talking to her, like, co-workers that she saw it in the pool on the 16th. So, you know, and Casey came back to the house. She could have come back to the house and, you know, gone in the pool or put the ladder back in the pool. Right. On June 30th, the judge says to her, like, you know, you don't have to testify like you don't have to get up and take the stand and Casey decides not to and one of the things at the beginning of the trial that the judge tells them to do is like if the defendant decides not 
to testify, you cannot take that as an omission of guilt. Um, There's a million reasons why people won't want to testify. They don't want to talk about it. They can't talk about it. Maybe she would incriminate herself in some other way. Because if she gets up and testifies for herself, the prosecution has the right to cross-examine her. I mean, at the, around this time, Jose tries to get her to, like, basically, like, a mistrial or saying that she can't, she's like ill and can't stand trial, but that's not the truth whatsoever. So on June 30th, this is also the day that Crystal Holloway takes the stand. Now you're probably like, who the fuck is Crystal Holloway? Because like, she's a nobody to this case, really. But she is there to basically break down the credibility of George Anthony. Basically, the defense team says that George and, or that Crystal says that George and Crystal had an affair and that this was proven by a text message that he sent her that says, I missed you and I need you in my life still. Now, according to George, George sent this to a lot of people because they had gotten very close to the people searching and that she was just one of the searchers that he'd become close to and he was saying, I still need you because we're still looking is basically and that it was misinterpreted. Now, do I think George slept with Crystal? I don't know. She don't really seem like his type. (laughs) But according to her, they had a sexual relationship and they had an affair. And that in one of their torrid moments, he confided in her that Kaylee had died accidentally in the pool and that things had just snowballed, which is an important thing to remember, out of control. And he helped cover it up. Now, prior when the defense did their opening, they said snowballed out of control. When they do their closing, they will also say snowballed out of control, which basically means Jose put that in Crystal's mouth, the term snowballed out of control. At this point in time, the defense rests and they never address the sexual assault allegations, which is like fucking huge. Like this was their bomb. This is why she lied because of the sexual assault. But there's a reason why they didn't. There's no fucking proof. Like, why would you get up there? Because basically, if they bring up the sexual assault charges or allegation, I should say, they would have to prove it. And there's no way to prove it. Then it falls all of the motive for her lying apart. So basically, they've just put this little like nugget into your mind, which technically you're not supposed to remember, but we're all human and we kind of remember. Now George feels icky. He's had an affair. We hear that he molested his daughter, that, you know, he tried to kill himself. There's all of these things that kind of line up against George, right? That's what the defense was doing. So flash forward a few days to July 3rd. On July 3rd, Judge Perry tells everyone that since the defense didn't bring up the sexual assault, tells the jurors, you cannot use the sexual assault in deciding Casey's fate. There was no evidence of it. So then he gives instructions to listen to what's about to happen, which is the prosecution is going to do their closing, then the defense. And then because this is a murder case, the prosecution can come back one more time, do a rebuttal on everything that the defense says. So the prosecution gets up. She basically restates her whole case from beginning to end. Casey Anthony chloroformed Kaylee, then put duct tape over her mouth so that she would pass away while she was sleeping, then put her in some trash bags, put her in the trunk of her car, eventually dumped her in the woods like she was trash. Like this is what the this is what they're saying. They speak for an hour and a half ish. Then Jose gets up and motherfucker talks for four hours. Jesus. Basically just like, oh no, like at this point, like he talked so long and he basically was just like, she didn't do it. There's no proof she did it. And that's the truth. Like the thing that the the, the sentence I think that really tore this apart was when he says the prosecution cannot tell you how she died, where she died, 
when she died, and who killed her. These are the things that, like, they didn't prove. They can give a story of what they think happened, but they don't even address where they think it happened. Like, if I was the prosecution, I would have been like, she was in the backyard playing near her playhouse. Casey went out with the chloroform, put it on there, then put the duct tape and let her pass away in the backyard. Or she did it in the bedroom because there's the decomp in the backyard. Like, I would have driven a point to, like, the body had to be there. This is why it was there, because she was killed there. And then she was taken from there to, like, the trunk where she spent several days and then was dumped in the woods. Like these are things I would have driven home. I should have been apparently a prosecutor. (laughs) So then after all of this, after the four hours of yelling on July 4th, which apparently they did not get off (laughs) on July 4th, the prosecution came back and did their rebuttal of everything. And then the jury was set to deliberate and they deliberated for 10 ish. So hours. So on July 5th, they come back in with their decision. Now, I'm going to tell you, this makes me super mad of what's about to come out of my mouth. They read that she's found not guilty on all three felony charges, which again were first degree murder, aggravated manslaughter, and aggravated child abuse. Okay, like I said in the inserted intro, the rest of this episode did get corrupted, so we will be picking up with a part five for y'all sometime next week. Jessica and I will work hard to get that recorded and up, but we will see you back here on Monday for a listener's episode. Bye, guys. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out, and we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.